MSW Media. Thanks to Aura Frames for supporting the Daily Beans. Aura Frames makes digital picture frames, and right now Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Visit auraframes.com to get up to $30 off their best-selling Carver frames. Plus, get free shipping with code DAILYBEANS at checkout. This deal ends on May 14th, so don't wait. Terms and conditions apply. And a big shout out today to Helix Sleep. Take their two-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans and use code HELIXPARTNER. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, May 8th, 2023. Today, a very special episode of the Daily Beans. I'll be going over the first sentencing recommendations from the Department of Justice for the January 6th rioters convicted of seditious conspiracy, as well as possible criminal activity by Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny, a jaw-dropping Herschel Walker campaign finance violation, a referral for possible disbarment of Sidney Powell in Michigan, and a 14th Amendment solution to the Republican-manufactured debt ceiling crisis. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. We are back. We are back from vacation. We were off last week. Uh, There is a new episode of Jack Out. There will be an episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 out this Wednesday, but we do have a lot of news to catch up on for the week we were out. And I have a surprise. I will be joined by Dana Goldberg today for the good news. Uh, So if you have any good news, send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Uh, But first, the long-awaited, at least I've been long-awaiting, the sentencing memorandum for the Oath Keepers convicted of seditious conspiracy. So let's get to it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. For months now, on multiple podcasts and on social media, and multiple radio appearances, I have been anticipating and waiting for the sentencing recommendations for the Oath Keepers convicted of seditious conspiracy so we could get a glimpse into how serious Merrick Garland and the DOJ are about deterring future domestic terrorism and successful coups. Now, you notice I didn't refer to January 6th as an attempted coup, and that's because it was a successful coup. The goal at the heart of the conspiracy was to impede the peaceful transfer of power by use of force by delaying the certification of Joe Biden's victory. And by all accounts, we know, we watched it there, the mob incited by the former president to attack the Capitol succeeded in delaying the electoral count. Well, late Friday, the Department of Justice released its sentencing recommendations for the Oath Keepers, many of whom were convicted of seditious conspiracy. Some were convicted in November of last year in the first Oath Keepers trial, including Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs. The other three in that trial, Harrelson, Watkins, and Caldwell, were not guilty, found guilty of seditious conspiracy, but they were convicted by a jury of related charges, including obstructing an official proceeding. The rest of the Oath Keepers were convicted in the second trial. Menuda, Hackett, Morishell, and Vallejo were all found guilty of seditious conspiracy. Even though there were two separate trials ending two months apart, Department of Justice put all their sentencing recommendations in one sentencing memorandum, which also includes a motion for upward departure. Now, upward departure is when you add aggravating factors to increase the sentence recommended in the sentencing guidelines. Sentencing guidelines are created by a sentencing guideline committee, guidelines commission, comes out of Congress. And the reason I've been waiting for this memo is because I wanted to see how DOJ would calculate the sentencing 
for a Civil War era statute that's rarely used by the Department of Justice. That's seditious conspiracy. And I wanted to know if the Department of Justice would also file a motion for upward departure using a domestic terror enhancement. And finally, I wanted to know if Department of Justice would recommend whether multiple counts of 20-year max sentences should run consecutively or concurrently. Meaning, if a defendant were found guilty of seditious conspiracy and obstructing an official proceeding, both which carry a 20-year max sentence, would DOJ ask for them to serve those sentences at the same time or back-to-back? Now, finally, I also wanted to look for any language that might hint at whether DOJ might consider seditious conspiracy charges for Donald Trump. I didn't really find any here. And I think that might be to remain uh, neutral on it so as not to prejudice future juries if they do decide to charge Donald with seditious conspiracy. And as you know, I've been saying that they probably won't charge Donald with seditious conspiracy. They probably will just get him with 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding. But we'll see. So far, Merrick Garland's DOJ in these cases has been very balls to the wall. Like, I'm, I'm really sort of blown away. As you know, if you've been listening to The Beans for a while, I was surprised they, they charged the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys with seditious conspiracy. I thought it would be 1512C2 for that as well. So I wanted to look at that language, but I I didn't really see that. Um, You know, not really too many indications about how they might come down on the architects uh, of the coup and the attack on the Capitol. I have the memorandum and motion for upward departure in front of me. I'd like to go over it with you and attempt to translate it into layman's terms. It's very long. Keep in mind, I am not a lawyer, but I'm pretty good at reading these filings and relaying the information. But lawyers listening, please feel free to send me any corrections to our website, dailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact and select correction. Because if I get any of this wrong in my interpretation, I really do want to know about it. I think it's very important what is in this memo. Now, the opening salvo in the filing signed by the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, reads like this. Quote, these defendants, this is how it starts. These defendants were prepared to fight, not for their country, but against it. In their own words, they were willing to die in a guerrilla war to achieve their goal of halting the transfer of power after the 2020 presidential election. As a co-conspirator recognized, their actions made these defendants, quote-unquote, traitors. It continues, using their positions of prominence within and affiliation with the Oath Keepers organization, these defendants played a central and damning role in opposing by force the government of the United States, breaking the solemn oath many of them swore as members of the United States Armed Forces. To support their operation, they amassed an arsenal of firearms across the Potomac River and led a conspiracy that culminated in a mob's attack on the United States Capitol while our elected representatives met in a joint session of Congress. Two juries found all nine defendants guilty of participating in this grave conduct. These defendants are unlike any of the hundreds of others who have been sentenced for their roles in the attack on the Capitol. Each defendant, therefore, deserves a significant sentence of incarceration. And then page five of this 183-page filing is where the factual background begins. And we all know the facts of this case, but I wanted to parse this section for any mentions of Trump, the Trump administration. His name appears, I think, 20, 32 times in this document, if memory serves. That's off the top of my head when I did a search. But most of them are mentions about his not inciting the Insurrection Act. here's, Here's like one of them. It says, as legal challenges to the election sputtered, and President Trump gave no indication he would invoke the Insurrection Act to halt the certification of the election, these defendants explicitly discussed the need to use any means necessary up to and including the use of force to oppose the transfer of power, and they began to focus on January 6th as a day of action for their objective. 
So it's stuff like that. Um, the statement says to me, DOJ puts the blame for the Oath Keepers' actions squarely on the Oath Keepers, but for the inaction of the former president, not in, you know, invoking the Insurrection Act. That's further evidenced in this statement. Quote, the defendant's action precipitated the violent riot and attack on the Capitol. So all the blame is going to the Oath Keepers here. And we know a lot of the January 6th rioters blamed Donald. Oh, we were just doing what he's... In fact, there were Oath Keepers who filed, and Proud Boys, who filed motions to dismiss the charges against them for the Public Authority Act, which is, you know, if the president tells you to do something, you're allowed to do it. You can't get in trouble for following the orders of a president. But as Chief Judge Beryl Howell wrote, he can't, you know, that there's no public authority to overthrow the government. You don't have the authority to do that. So he, you can't, that's not a defense. And, and those motions for dismissal were tossed out. Now, the next section is about the victims. And the Department of Justice relays quotes from senators, members of Congress, law enforcement, including our friend Harry Dunn. I encourage you all to read that section so you can hear their voices. Um, it's very powerful. Department of Justice then has a section called the scope of the conspiracy with a total of 22 individuals. And the scope is mentioned here because it plays a role in sentencing. This paragraph also answers my question, by the way, about whether the Department of Justice would add a terror enhancement for upward departure. Quote, the scope of the conspiracy impacts many aspects of sentencing, including each defendant's culpability for relevant conduct. That's under U.S. Sentencing Guidelines Section 1B13. The guidelines specific offense characteristic for an offense that is extensive in scope. The guidelines also uh, 2J1.2B3, the guidelines adjustment for aggravating roles in 3B1.1, and the guidelines recommended upward departure for terrorism, Section 3A1.4. And the need to avoid unwarranted sentence disparities, which is 18 U.S. Code Section 3553A6. So those are all of the things that they want to, that they're going to break down in this whole filing, right? Why the sentence is what it is. We take the baseline, we add it up, and then we need to use the guidelines for the extensive scope. And then we need to add the guidelines upward departure for terrorism, aggravating roles in the offense. Like, were you a supervisor? Were you a leader? Avoiding unwanted sentencing disparities. So all of these things are taken into account when calculating the recommended sentence. They go on to say, as explained below, the scope of the conspiracy helps illustrate why the leaders and major participants must receive significant sentences of incarceration. Now get this. Here's a list of charges for all nine defendants. Count one, seditious conspiracy, 20 years. Count two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, 20 years. Count three, obstructing an official proceeding, 20 years. Count four, conspiracy to use force, intimidation, or threats to prevent officers of the United States from discharging their duties, six years. Count six, interference with law enforcement during a civil disorder, five years. And counts seven, eight, nine, 11, and 13, tampering with documents, 20 years. Each defendant, the DOJ says, was convicted of at least one count with a statutory max of 20 years of incarceration. Everybody, Everybody, all of these defendants were convicted of something that carries a 20-year sentence and at least one additional felony count. And this is where the DOJ answers my questions about whether they'd recommend concurrent or consecutive sentences for those who were convicted of two crimes that each carry a 20-year sentence or one crime that carries a 20-year sentence and an additional felony. And this is important, and it's kind of hard to understand. Quote, the government respectfully requests 
that the court sentences Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs to terms of incarceration greater than 20 years, meaning that the terms of incarceration for seditious conspiracy would run consecutively to the terms of incarceration for obstructing an official proceeding and or obstruction of justice, unquote. And that surprised me. I've been assuming this whole time that if you're convicted of seditious conspiracy and obstructing an official proceeding or conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, that you would serve, let's say you got 15 years for seditious conspiracy, 15 years for obstructing an official proceeding. I figured they would be served concurrently, that you would serve 15 years. They're asking that they be served consecutively. Way to go, Matt Graves. DOJ goes on to explain, as if they were talking to me, why consecutive sentencing is appropriate. The court may sentence a defendant to a total term of incarceration greater than 20 years, i.e. run the terms consecutively, if the court determines that such a sentence is necessary to comply with the factors in 18 U.S. Code Section 3553A2. That is, to reflect the seriousness of the offense to promote respect for the law, to provide just punishment for the offense, to afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct, and to protect the public from further crimes of the defendant. 18 U.S. Code Section 3584B, see United States v. Lafayette, that's from 2003, explaining that the court may impose consecutive or stacked sentences to achieve a total sentence in excess of the statutory maximum on a single count. In the Sentencing Reform Act, the DOJ goes on to, to remind us, Congress noted the appropriateness of a sentencing regime in which a defendant convicted of multiple counts may be sentenced to consecutive terms of incarceration. The Sentencing Commission implemented this congressional directive, instructing that the court shall determine the total punishment, and then if the sentence imposed on the count carrying the highest statutory maximum is less than the total punishment, the sentence imposed on one or more of the other counts shall run consecutively, but only to the extent necessary to produce a combined sentence equal to the total punishment. So let me translate. I'm using Stuart Rhodes as an example. He's convicted of seditious conspiracy and obstructing an official proceeding and some other things, but let's just go with those two. Both carry a 20-year max sentence. And let's say on the count of seditious conspiracy, Judge Amit Mehta sentences him to 16 years. And then on the obstructing an official proceeding, sentences him to nine years. If Rhodes served the sentences concurrently or at the same time, he would serve 16 years. But the Sentencing Commission allows DOJ to have those sentences served consecutively up to the total punishment of 20 years. So I think he'd serve 20 years for those two counts or perhaps more. That's where the language is a little confusing because it says, only to the extent necessary to produce a combined sentence equal to the total punishment. Now, that's not including any upward departure or additional years for the terror enhancement, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, But that's my reading of it. Again, send corrections at dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact, please. Department of Justice then explains how sentencing for conspiracies works. Eight of the nine defendants were convicted of being participants in at least one conspiracy, and thus, by virtue of the jury's verdicts, They are responsible for actions of their conspirators that fall within the parameters of Section 1B1.3A1B. Or otherwise, quote, once the conspiracy and the defendant's knowing participation in it have been established beyond a reasonable doubt by the jury, 
the defendant will be vicariously liable for the substantive acts committed in furtherance of the conspiracy by his co-conspirators. That's U.S. v. Sample. Let me read that again, because that's big and important, and it's going to matter when it comes to Donald Trump. Again, once the conspiracy and the defendant's knowing participation in it have been established beyond a reasonable doubt, the defendant will be vicariously liable for the substantive acts committed in furtherance of the conspiracy by his other co-conspirators. While the ninth defendant, Caldwell, was acquitted of all the conspiracy counts, the court can and should find that he was a member of the conspiracy, and thus his relevant conduct includes the actions of his co-conspirators. So even though he was found not guilty of the conspiracy charges, he should be considered still a member of this conspiracy. It's fascinating. And therefore, he's liable for the conduct of his co-conspirators who were, who were convicted of seditious conspiracy. And here's where we get to the part about how to calculate the sentencing for seditious conspiracy, because there isn't a specific guideline for seditious conspiracy. We know this. I figured they would use the guidelines for treason. But here's how it shakes out. Under Section 2X1.1, for a conspiracy conviction for which the substantive offense is not covered by a specific guideline, like seditious conspiracy, use Section 2X5.1. Then you go to Section 2X5.1. Under Section 2X5.1, since there's no applicable Chapter 2 guideline for an offense of sedition in the statutory appendix, use the most analogous guideline. Here, that is Section 2M1.1, treason. So let's go to 2M1.1, treason. Under Section 2M1.1A2, if a defendant's conduct was not tantamount to waging war against the United States, then use the offense level applicable to the most analogous offense, which is Section 2J1.2, obstruction of justice. So what they're saying is, there's no seditious conspiracy, go here. Then there's none of that, go to treason. And if you're, you know, treason, if you didn't wage war against the United States, which is not what happened here, then go to Section 2J1.2, obstruction of justice. That same goes for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Obstructing an official proceeding, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, all of these additional charges all sort of take you through the treason train down to obstruction of justice. So when calculating seditious conspiracy, obstructing an official proceeding and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, along with several other offenses here, conspiracy to prevent officers in the United States like Mike Pence from discharging their duties, tampering with documents, all goes to 2J1.2 obstruction of justice. But the seditious conspiracy train goes through treason, which I think is cool. Now, that doesn't mean they're convicted of treason. I wanted to be clear on that. But you have to see treason to calculate seditious conspiracy. That's how serious this charge is. Now the DOJ goes through enhancements for how bad the obstruction is. First, the Electoral College certification on January 6th falls comfortably within the meaning of administration of justice as used in Section 2J1.2. That's Sentencing Guidelines for Obstruction of Justice because it involved Congress's performance of duties required by law. Second, the PSRs correctly apply the eight-level enhancement to each of the nine defendants because the defendant's relevant conduct involved causing or threatening to cause physical injury to a person or property damage in order to obstruct the administration of justice. And the obstruction was substantial, so there's an enhancement for that too. 
The defendant's relevant conduct resulted in the evacuation of an entire branch of the federal government and the suspension of a congressional proceeding that was required by the Constitution and federal statute to take place at a certain date, time, and location so that our country could peacefully transfer presidential power from one person to the next. That's pretty fucking substantial, right? DOJ then cites all the cases in which a judge has agreed with them on these enhancements. By the government's count, of the 15 judges in this district who have handled a sentencing hearing for one six defendants convicted of 1512, obstructing an official proceeding, of those 15 judges, 13 found that the specific offense characteristic in 2J12B2 applies because the defendant's conduct resulted in a substantial interference with the administration of justice. So we think it's substantial. We think it interfered in administration of justice. We think that January 6th electoral count was, a, a, you know, an administration of justice. And 13 of 15 judges agree with us. So the two judges, by the way, that didn't, Trevor McFadden and Reggie Walton, oddly. So, and this is, by the way, different from Judge Nichols thinking that 1512C2 doesn't apply at all. This is just in sentencing recommendation. These judges, 13 of the 15 judges, agreed that the interference was substantial. It was a disruption to Congress. It disrupted the administration of justice. So these enhancements should apply. You've applied them in 13 of 15 other times. You should apply them here. So the three-level enhancement for substantial obstruction should apply. Then they argue the two-level enhancement for the scope, planning, and preparation should apply. And when I say three-level and two-level, there's a whole chart, like a like a guideline thing that says, you know, you start at 27, add two to 30, add three, you get to 33. And then you look at 33 and you see what the, you know, the for somebody who has a criminal past or who doesn't have a criminal past, and you look to see what the range is for sentencing. That's how this whole thing shakes out. So when I say leveling enhancements, that's what the, you know, that's what that means. DOJ argues also for a four-level enhancement for leaders and a three-level enhancement for managers and supervisors and a two-level enhancement for obstructing justice on top of obstructing justice. They argue against a sentence reduction for acceptance of responsibility because there was none. Usually if a if a defendant is like, I accept full responsibility, you can get a couple of levels shaved off. Then we get to upward departures for terrorism. An upward departure under Section 3A1.4, Note 4, we call this note four, is warranted for all nine defendants whose relevant conduct was, quote, calculated to influence or affect the conduct of government by intimidation or coercion or to retaliate against the government's conduct. All nine defendants were active participants in a sweeping conspiracy to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. That is why this is a terroristic act. And now we move into the narrative in a section called Need for Sentence Imposed to Reflect the Seriousness of the Offense and Promote Respect for the Law. This is the narrative part. And here the DOJ writes, For over 200 years, since President George Washington first voluntarily relinquished his executive power back to the people and set in motion a tradition that has formed the bedrock of our democracy, the American people have chosen their president through free and fair elections, not force. To justify their actions, the conspirators here called the outcome they disagreed with tyranny that would lead to an apocalyptic end to the country. They sowed doubt in others, riled up and recruited them to travel to D.C., and led them in an attack on the Capitol by giving the riot leaders in the form of so-called oath keepers. Their oaths of service were not to the country, but to themselves. 
the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th was a criminal offense unparalleled in American history. It represented a grave threat to our democratic norms. Indeed, it was one of the only times in our history when the building was literally occupied by hostile forces. By its very nature, the attack defies comparison to other events. Every defendant here joined a conspiracy that contributed to this unprecedented attack on our democracy. Moreover, opposing the transfer of presidential power and attacking the U.S. Capitol building and grounds constitutes an attack on the rule of law. Leading up to January 6th, the defendants and their co-conspirators believed their view of the Constitution trumped all others and anointed themselves the guardians of their republic. Republic is in quotes. These defendants attempted to silence millions of Americans who had placed their vote for a different candidate to ignore the variety of legal and judicial mechanisms that lawfully scrutinize the electoral process leading up to and on January 6th, and to shatter the democratic system of governance enshrined in our laws and our Constitution. And when they did not get what they wanted, they acted by together attacking the very people and place at the very time when those laws were in action. At its essence, these defendants' crimes are the antithesis of respect for the law. As with the nature and circumstances of the offense, this factor supports a lengthy sentence of incarceration. A lesser sentence could encourage further abuses, not only by these defendants, but by others who disagree with the next elections in our country's local, state, and federal governments. Very, very, very well written. Then we get on to deterrence. Here, the need to deter others is especially strong because these defendants engaged in acts that were intended to influence the government through intimidation or coercion. In other words, terrorism. They say it again. And they were leaders of such efforts. Because these defendants not only contributed to the attack on the Capitol, but helped organize it, their sentences will be noted by those who would foment such political violence in the future. Their sentences will be noted by those who would foment such political violence in the future. And finally, the need to avoid sentencing disparities, another consideration. The crimes these defendants committed are unlike any others that this court or other judges have addressed with respect to the attack on the Capitol January 6th. Rather, these crimes align much more closely with the acts of terrorism for which other courts have imposed lengthy sentences in other seditious conspiracy cases. You can't treat this like somebody was trespassing and parading. This is seditious conspiracy. Then we get into the maths. All right. I'll go through just the Stuart Rhodes one. I'm not going to go through all nine, but this is very fascinating. This is how they calculate uh, his sentence. They begin on page 82, and I'm just going to read it here. The analysis below details the facts specific to each defendant, including those facts that support the application of the guidelines, chapter three adjustments, and the terrorism departure under note four. As explained above, the conspirators' relevant conduct supports application of each of the Chapter 2 specific offenses characteristics to each defendant. They're all guilty of all the stuff because they were all in the same fucking conspiracy. I added that part. And therefore will not be repeated below. Addressed below are the defendant-specific facts that support the application of certain specific offenses characteristic in addition to the generally applicable relevant conduct. To the extent applicable... These individual analyses also address the factors under Section 3553A, including the history and characteristics of each defendant. That's like their history. Do they have a rap sheet? And Section 3553A1, the need for the sentence to provide a just punishment. 
and 3553A2A, the need for a sentence to protect the public from further crimes, including deterrence. That's 3553A, 2B, and C. All right, so Stuart Rhodes. Rhodes led a conspiracy to oppose by force the lawful transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election. He exploited his vast public influence as the leader of the Oath Keepers and used his talents for manipulation to goad more than 20 other American citizens into using force, intimidation, and violence to seek to impose their preferred result on a U.S. presidential election. The conduct created a grave risk to our democratic system of government and must be met with swift and severe punishment. A 25-year sentence is compliant with the sentencing guidelines and necessary to satisfy the factors this court must consider under 18 U.S. Code Section 3553A in imposing a sentence. Base-level offense for seditious conspiracy is 14. They want to add 8 for physical injury and property damage. These are levels, by the way. They want to add three for substantial interference due to administration of justice, which I talked about. They want to add two for the extensive scope and planning and preparation. They want to add four for an aggravating role of being the leader of the organization. And they want to add two to the level for obstruction of justice. That is a level of 33. That's the total. Okay. On count one. Okay. Count three, obstructing an official proceeding. 14, again, is the base because we all have to go, you know how I said we go through treason and then we go down to obstruction of justice. They, uh, that starts at base level 14. Add eight for the property damage and physical injury. Add three for the substantial interference and due to administration of justice. Add two in extensive the scope uh, and then add four for being the leader and then add two for obstruction of justice. Again, 33. Then count seven, tampering with documents, is a base of 14 add three for substantial interference and add two, but it's an especially probative record that they destroyed. That gives you a total of 21. And so you cross-reference that to the base level offense of 21 and you get 21. All of these counts group, those group together. Accordingly, the total adjusted offense level for Rhodes would be the highest of the offense levels for the three counts, which is 33. Right, because you have 33, 33, and 21. So this is a group, so the highest is 33 for these, because we group them together. The government submits an upward departure of six levels as warranted under note four for the degree to which Rhodes' offense conduct was calculated to influence the effect of government. This is the terrorism um, note four enhancement. And Rhodes deserve no credit for accepting responsibility, which would bring the defendant's offense level to 39 for a recommended sentence of 21.8 to 27.25 years. So the government recommends 25, just above the midpoint of that range. So that's how they get it, if that makes sense. And then they have additional factual support, and and they go through this for every single defendant. And that's why this is 183 pages long. (laughs) So conclusion, it says at the end, for the reasons said above, The government recommends the court impose a lengthy sentence of imprisonment for each defendant, specifically Stuart Rhodes, 25 years, Kelly Meggs, 21 years, Jessica Watkins, 18 years, Roberto Menuda, 17 years, Edward Vallejo, 17 years, Kenneth Harrelson, 15 years, Thomas Caldwell, 14 years, Joseph Hackett, 12 years, and David Morishal, 10 years. Now, the judge in this case is Judge Amit Mehta. He recently sentenced a rioter to 14 years after DOJ recommended 24 years. Uh, If I had to guess, I think Meta will give Rhodes right around 20 years, maybe even more, but perhaps not the full 25 years recommended. We'll see how it shakes out. Judges can also go over 
what the recommendations are from the Department of Justice. All right, I'm going to take a quick break here. I will be right back with more news that we missed while I was gone. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. As you know, I used to toss and turn throughout the night, never able to find a comfortable position on my old mattress. I decided to try out the Helix mattress after hearing so many rave reviews from friends and family and all my sleep problems disappeared. Now I wake up feeling refreshed, energized. I'm ready to take on my day. It's incredible. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans and take their two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life, and you'll get 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Their quick and easy sleep quiz makes finding the perfect mattress a breeze. With 20 unique mattresses to choose from, including the award-winning Lux Collection, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even one made just for kids, there's something for everyone, no matter what your sleep preferences are. After taking the quiz, you know me, I was matched with the Helix Midnight, which has been the perfect fit for me. Best part, my personalized mattress was shipped straight to my door for free, plus a 100-night risk-free trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model. I'm totally confident in my purchase. It's been a lifesaver. So go take the sleep quiz, order the mattress you're matched to. It will redefine your idea of what a mattress should be. And now Helix has just released their newest and most high-end collection, the Helix Elite, promising even more elevated sleep experiences. Say goodbye to traditional mattress shopping and hello to a better night's sleep with Helix Sleep. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans and use code HELIXPARTNER. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. All right, everybody, welcome back. There was so much other news. I just I had to cover it with you. I know it's going to be a little bit of a long show, but it's a very special Daily Beans. First up from ProPublica. In 2008, Clarence Thomas decided to send his teenage grandnephew to Hidden Lake Academy, a private boarding school in the foothills of northern Georgia. The boy, Mark Martin, was far from home. For the previous decade, he'd lived with the justice and his wife in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. for a decade. Uh, Thomas had taken legal custody of Martin when he was six years old and had recently told an interviewer he was raising him as a son. Tuition and boarding at the school ran more than $6,000 a month. But Thomas didn't pay the bill. A bank statement for the school from July 2009, buried in unrelated court filings, shows the source of Martin's tuition payment for that month, the company of billionaire real estate magnate Harlan Crow. The payments extended beyond that month, according to Christopher Grimwood, a former administrator at the school. Crow paid Martin's tuition the entire time he was a student there which was about a year. That's what Grimwood told ProPublica. Harlan picked up the tab, he said. He got to know Crow and the Thomases and had access to school financial information through his work as an administrator. Before and after his time at Hidden Lake, Martin attended a second boarding school, Randolph-Macon Academy in Virginia. Quote, Harlan said he was paying for the tuition at Rudolph-Macon Academy as well, Grimwood said, recalling a conversation he had with Harlan Crow during a visit to the billionaire's Adirondacks estate. Way cool. ProPublica interviewed Martin, his former classmates, and former staff at both schools. The exact total Crow paid for Martin's education over the years remains unclear, but if he paid for all four years at the two schools, the price tag could have exceeded $150,000, according to public records of tuition rates at those schools. And guess what? Thomas did not report the tuition payments from Crow on his annual financial disclosures. Several years earlier, Thomas disclosed a gift of $5,000 for Martin's education from another friend— It's not clear why he reported that payment, but not Crow's. The tuition payments add to the picture of how the Republican megadonor has helped fund the lives of the Thomas family. Now, something else uh, I want to talk about uh, real quick, because if you remember, I think 
some folks got their tuition paid by the Trump organization and the Trump organization was convicted, charged and convicted of tax fraud because you, that's taxable income, those gifts. So we don't know what his taxes say, but that's potential criminal liability. And from Brown, Boberg, and O'Connell at the Post, conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo arranged for the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to be paid tens of thousands of dollars for consulting work about a decade ago, specifying that her name be left off the billing paperwork. That's according to documents reviewed by the Washington Post. Leonard Leo, the architect of the conservative court. In January 2012, Leonard Leo instructed the GOP pollster Kellyanne Conway, of all folks, to build a nonprofit group, he advises, and use the money to pay Ginny Thomas. The same year, the nonprofit, the Judicial Education Project, filed a brief to the Supreme Court in a landmark voting rights case. The one that gutted the Voting Rights Act. Leonard Leo, a key figure in a network of nonprofits that has worked to support the nomination of conservative judges, told Kellyanne Conway he wanted her to give Jenny Thomas another $25,000. According to the documents, he emphasized the paperwork should have no mention of Ginny, of course. It's the of course that sticks out to me. Has anybody asked Leonard Leo, why of course? Why is it duh that we leave Jenny Th- Thomas's name off these payments? <laughs> is it because the judicial education process filed a brief? In the voting rights case, Conway's firm, the polling company, sent the Judicial Education Project a $25,000 bill that day. Per Leo's instructions, it listed the purpose as supplement for constitution polling and opinion consulting. That seems like, that seems like falsifying business records. Something else Trump has been indicted for. In all, according to the documents, the polling company paid the Thomas's firm, Liberty Consulting, 80 grand between June 2011 and June 2012, and is expected to pay $20,000 more before the end of 2012. 100 grand. The documents reviewed by the Post do not indicate the precise nature of any work Thomas did for the Judicial Education Project or the polling company. Sounds like a bribe. The arrangement reveals that Leo, longtime Federalist Society leader and friend of the Thomases, has functioned not only as an ideological ally of Clarence Thomas, but also has worked to provide financial remuneration to his family. And it shows Leo arranging for the money to be drawn from a nonprofit that soon would have an interest before the court. It is time for Clarence Thomas to resign. And we need the Senate. I need Dick Durbin. We need the Judiciary Committee to help put the pressure on. What he's doing now is the equivalent of what what I've read is a beltway shrug. It's not going to cut it. Yes, I know, Senator, that it's not possible to impeach him in the House or convict him in the Senate. But you could call for it to help raise public pressure. Stop fucking sitting on your hands. Subpoena the justices. If you have to pressure Dianne Feinstein to resign to get the subpoenas done, then pressure Dianne Feinstein to resign. Everyone is just about done with the nothing will work attitude. We can't do anything. Our hands are tied. Frankly, it's not much different from Republicans thinking we can't do anything about gun violence in this country. I understand that you can't impeach Clarence Thomas. But can you call for it? Can you push it? 
Can you use your bully pulpit? Can you use your subpoena power to drag these fuckers in and ask them questions? I want to know from Leonard Leo what he meant by of course. I want to know if Justice Thomas claimed these tuition payments and his taxes as income. I want to know why you're having Harlan Crow pay your kids tuition or buy your mother's house or buy property from Gorsuch. We need to do more. I, I understand again. I get it. I get it. We can impeach him. I understand. I know. But, well, there's nothing we can do is not an acceptable answer. There are things you can do. You can be loud about it. I'm not religious, but every single fucking religion says you have to do the work before you can pray about it. Faith without works is dead, right? James 2.26. Tie your camel first, then leave the rest to God, right? Get your shit together. Speaking of gun violence, from the Washington Post, the gunman who opened fire on an outlet mall in the Dallas suburb on Saturday, killing at least eight people, was a man in his early 30s who had white supremacist and neo-Nazi beliefs, according to people familiar. Mauricio Garcia, a local resident, had multiple weapons on him and in his nearby car, uh, according to people familiar, who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Authorities have not released a motive, but a patch on his chest said RWDS. That's an acronym for right-wing death squad. The phrase is popular among right-wing extremists, neo-Nazis, white supremacists. In addition to the weapons found on his body, investigators found another five guns inside his car nearby. Five guns. The shooter also injured at least seven people before a police officer who was at the Allen, Texas mall on an unrelated call fatally shot him at about 3.30. Allen Police Chief Brian Harvey said that in a statement on Saturday. Authorities believe the gunman acted alone. There were no further threats, according to Harvey, at least not in this incident. Children were among the victims at Allen Premium Outlets. That's Rep. Keith Self, Republican from Texas, who represents the area and said local authorities briefed him by phone after the shooting. A person wearing a security uniform was among the dead, but it was unclear whether the guard was on duty. The assailant used an AR-15 style weapon, was wearing tactical gear. He was living in the Dallas area at a hotel at the time of the shooting, according to two people familiar. He'd lived with his parents before that, his mom. Since the gunman is dead, a major focus of investigators will be whether anyone knew what he planned to do or if anyone helped him do it. And this threat of white supremacy, this stochastic and organized domestic terrorism, is why the Oath Keeper's sentencing recommendations are so fucking important. Yet the media is not covering it. They're comfortable bitching about the end of Title 42 or some upcoming caravan that doesn't exist or complaining about Ruth Bader Ginsburg not retiring soon enough as though a 5-4 conservative court with Alito and Thomas still would have saved Roe. Fuck off. This is the number one threat in our country. White supremacy, domestic terrorism. They're doing nothing. And from Sullenberger at Raw Story, when Herschel Walker emailed a representative for a billionaire industrialist and longtime family friend, Dennis Washington, in March 2022, he seemed to be engaging in normal behavior for a political candidate. He was asking for money. But unbeknownst to Washington and the billionaire's staff, Walker's request was far more out of the ordinary. It was something campaign finance experts are calling unprecedented, stunning and jaw dropping. Walker wasn't just asking for donations to his campaign. 
he was soliciting hundreds of thousands of dollars for his own personal company, a company that he never disclosed in his financial statements. Emails obtained by the Daily Beast and verified as authentic by a person with knowledge of the exchanges show that Walker asked Washington to wire $535,200 directly to that undisclosed company, HR Talent LLC. And the emails reveal that not only did Washington complete Walker's wire requests, he was under the impression that these were in fact political contributions. In the best possible circumstances, Legal experts told the Daily Beast the emails suggest violations of federal fundraising rules. In the worst case, they could be an indication of a more serious crime such as wire fraud. That carries a 20-year max sentence, defrauding donors. Same thing Jack Smith is looking into over at the Save America PAC. And from Claire Hendrickson at the Detroit Free Press, the Michigan Attorney Grievance Commission filed a complaint with the state's Attorney Discipline Board recommending disciplinary action against Sidney Powell and her team of lawyers that filed a conspiracy-laden lawsuit to overturn the 2020 election. A federal judge in August of 2021, and we know this, we reported on it extensively, found that the attorneys abused the legal system to damage voters' faith in the election system. That order imposed sanctions on the attorneys and referred them to the Michigan Attorney Grievance Commission and other attorney disciplinary authorities for possible suspension or disbarment. Powell's lawsuit mirrored others to thwart the will of the voters in battleground states won by Joe Biden, calling it part of a legal strategy that would release the Kraken. Former President Trump repeated the false claims leveled in the lawsuit in the wake of the 2020 election. In addition to Powell, the Kraken lawyers referred to Attorney Discipline Board for possible disciplinary action are Gregory Rohl, uh, Hagerstrom, Stephanie Gentilla, Julia Holler, Brandon Johnson, Emily Newman, Howard Kleinhandler, and Lynn Wood. Hagerstrom, Gentilla, and Rohl are currently licensed to practice law in Michigan. The State Bar of Texas previously attempted to discipline Powell, but a Texas judge dismissed the disciplinary case because it was numbered wrong. Among the alleged misconduct laid out in the complaint from the Attorney Grievance Commission dated May 1, just a few days ago, the attorneys are accused of bringing or defending a proceeding or asserting or controverting an issue therein where the basis for doing so is frivolous and engaging in conduct that is contrary to justice, ethics, honesty, or good morals. That's that turpitude part, right? In response to complaints filed by the Attorney Discipline Board, the board will appoint a three-person panel of volunteer attorneys to hear the matter, according to the Michigan Grievance Commission's website. The panel will determine whether the attorneys named in the complaint engaged in misconduct. The panel can then decide what disciplinary action to take, such as reprimand, suspension, disbarment, or probation. We know in December 2021, Judge Parker, Linda Parker, ordered the group of the nine attorneys involved in the lawsuit to pay more than $175,000 to cover the legal fees incurred by the state and the city of Detroit in defending against the ridiculous lawsuit. Powell and her team of lawyers have appealed those sanctions. The matter is pending before the Sixth Circuit. The appeals court previously denied requests from Powell and some other lawyers to skirt continuing legal education imposed by the lower court. (laughs) They didn't want to have to take those extra classes on how to file a fucking pleading. But with the deadline to complete that coursework looming, Powell and five other sanctioned lawyers argued the requirement infringed on their First Amendment rights and asked the appeals court to suspend the requirement. Gentilla, another attorney involved in the Kraken lawsuit, filed her own motion seeking to suspend the court order. No. And finally, in an op-ed from Lawrence Tribe about the Republican-manufactured debt ceiling crisis, Lawrence Tribe says, At this moment, at the White House, as well as the Department of Treasury and Justice, 
Officials are debating a legal theory that previous presidents in any number of legal experts, including me, had ruled out in 2011 when the Obama administration confronted a default from Republicans. The theory builds on Section 4 of the 14th Amendment to argue that Congress, without realizing it, set itself on a path that would violate the Constitution when in 1917 it capped the size of the federal debt. Over the years, Congress has raised the debt ceiling scores of times, most recently two years ago when it set the cap at $31.4 trillion. We hit that amount on January 19th and are being told that the extraordinary measures the Treasury has available to get around those are about to run out. When that happens, all hell will break loose. Taking advantage of that prospect, congressional Republicans are threatening to do nothing unless the administration agrees to cut lots of government programs and their party has had in its sights. Taking advantage of that prospect, congressional Republicans are threatening to do nothing unless Biden agrees to slash government programs. These are government programs that Republicans have been looking to slash forever. Uh, If the president caves to their demands, they will agree to raise the cap unless the crisis occurs again. Then, and when it does, they will surely pursue the same game of chicken, or maybe more accurately, Russian roulette. Well done, Lawrence Tribe. It's a complicated situation, but a solution is staring us in the face. Section 4 of the 14th Amendment says the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned ever. Proponents of the unconstitutional argument, the unconstitutionality argument, say that when Congress enacted the debt limit, effectively forcing the United States to stop borrowing to honor its debts when that limit was reached, it built a violation of that constitutional command into our fiscal structure. And that as a result, that limit and all that followed are invalid. Lawrence says, I never agreed with that argument. It raises thorny questions about the appropriate way to interpret the text. Does Section 4 read properly prohibit anything beyond putting a federal government into default? If so, which actions does it forbid? And most important, could this interpretation open the door for dangerous presidential overreach if Section 4 empowers the president single-handedly to declare laws he dislikes unconstitutional? And he still worries about these questions, Lawrence Tribe does. He goes on to say, but I've come to believe that they're the wrong ones for us to be asking. While teaching constitutional law, I often explored uh, the problem of a bloated presidential power, the puzzle of preserving the rule of law in the face of unprecedented pressures, and the paradox of having to choose among a set of indisputably bad options. And during my last semester teaching, with COVID forcing my seminars from the classroom to the video screen, I studied the most insightful literature on the debt ceiling and concluded we need to reframe the argument. The question isn't whether the president can tear up the debt limit statute to ensure the Treasury Department can pay the bills submitted by veterans' hospitals or military contractors, or pension funds. The question isn't whether the president can, in effect, become a one-person Supreme Court, striking down laws passed by Congress. The right question is whether Congress, after passing the spending bills that created the debts in the first place, can invoke an arbitrary dollar limit to force the president and his administration to do its bidding. There's only one right answer to that question, and it's no. And there's only one person with the power to give Congress that answer. It's the president of the United States. As a practical matter, what that means is Biden must tell Congress in no uncertain terms and as soon as possible before it's too late that the United States will pay all its bills as they come due, even if the Treasury Department must borrow more than Congress said it can. So I encourage you to read this op-ed by Lawrence Tribe. I think you will find it very enlightening. It goes on for quite a while and it's really well written. So go say hi to Lawrence Tribe on Twitter and thank him for this because it's really good. Um, And we'll see how that plays out. Uh, And uh, I know that President Biden, in an interview with, I believe, Stephanie Rule, who did a really great job talking to him, said that that's this this section four of the 14th Amendment is not off the table. So you can just go on and keep paying the bills. 
And now there's a lot of other breaking news this week that we missed on the special counsel investigation, which you can hear in the current episode of the Jack podcast. And there's big news, including new cooperators in the Fonnie Willis probe in Georgia, plus the latest in the Donald Trump rape trial. And I cover those stories with Pete Strzok on this Wednesday's episode of Clean Up on All 45. Thank you for sticking through it with me. This was a pretty long episode, but we'll be right back with Dana Goldberg for the good news. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. Are you tired of having thousands of cherished photos just sitting in your phone or scattered across a bunch of social media platforms or like me in photo albums, in boxes, in storage (laughs) that I pull out and take photos with uh, with my phone. But with Aura Frames, you can display all your favorite moments in one place on a stunning high-resolution digital display without the hassle of having to print them out. I have personally used Aura Frames. I love how easy it is to set up and use. Plus, it's been great having all my photos of Olive and the kitties all in one place. The best part is that it's not just limited to one person's photos. The entire family can join in using an app and add their own photos to the frame just as easily. And if your family has a fun sense of humor, it can get really it can get really hilarious. But you can feel close to each other from anywhere, no matter how far away you are. And I love that about this. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy and happiness this Mother's Day. When you surprise mom or grandma or your aunt or your sister, anybody, any mom in your life with a personalized Aura frame preloaded with meaningful memories, And even uh, you can preload a special message that will appear as soon as it's set up. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and The Strategist, and they have been selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames offer simple, elegant solutions for displaying your favorite moments without the hassle of printing or sifting through photos on your camera. It's a perfect gift for anyone who cherishes their memories and wants to stay uh, in touch with people far away and relive those memories in a beautiful, convenient way. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. This is the best Mom's Day gift. Listeners, you can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com, A-U-R-A Frames.com, and use code DAILYBEANS, all one word, at checkout to get up to $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling Carver Frames. The deal ends May 14th, so do not wait. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, what the mutt, what the heck wine, where I try to guess what breeds your horse is, that's a new thing apparently. Or if you, you know, want to give a shout out to a loved one or a local business or an adoptable pet in your area, anything you want to send us for the good news, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. And I have a surprise for you joining me today for the good news is Dana Goldberg. Dana's back. Hi, everybody. I missed you. Uh, AG, I missed you very much. And listen, I'm just here for the good news because AG put a lot of work into a show that she didn't know I'd be back for. So I'll be back in your ears for the full beans tomorrow. But let's hit some good news stories. I could use it because shit, as we know, is not good right now. So mm-hmm. let's put it right in our veins. Some good news. Yeah, let's do it. Again, That that if you please send us your good news stories at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from anonymous, pronouns she and her. Quick correction. From last week's beans, I'm pretty sure that Jamie Raskin was given Mandel bread, not Mandela bread. 
it's not a South African leader or geometric configuration of symbols, geometric uh, configuration of symbols. <laughs> it's delicious, a delicious dessert treat, not Mandela. It's a loaf-shaped, sliced, pecan-flavored shortbread, often described as Jewish biscotti. It's absolutely scrumptious. I'd be happy to send you some if I knew the address to send it to. It's seriously delicious. Hope everyone enjoys the week off. I'm taking the week off, too. And the following one. And the one after that. My first three-week vacation. For pod pet tax, in addition to my tuxi Ishtar, I'm sharing a sunset and a moonset, both taken a few steps outside my back door. Enjoy. Look. Also, these are incredible photos. Yeah, they really are. Look at Ishtar. Oh, was this a feral? Before, he's got a little clip on his ear. Um, But what a beautiful baby. But yeah, gorgeous photos. Gorgeous, gorgeous. All right. This next one is from Kay, pronouns she and her. Hey, queens of the beans. Just wanted to send a pic of my grand cat who totally snubbed the tape box challenge. <laughs> Here is the <laughs> empress stating in no uncertain terms that she knows the difference between one and three dimensions. Thanks for keeping the news palatable, Kay. <laughs> Look at the baby. <laughs> oh, my God. That is a smile if I've ever that's... seen one on a cat and I've never seen one on a cat. So I'm pretty sure that's a smile. That's so adorable. Either that or it's like just the pre-yawn stages of a cat. But Don't thank take you for my that, joy. Kate. That is a smile on a cat. <laughs> I will not. Never mind. You're right. The cat is smiling. Do you want to take the next one too? I'm happy to. This is from Anonymous. No pronouns given. I don't know if this is good news or not, but sharing nonetheless, because I thought it was super interesting. As context, I want to say thank you for the recommendation of Long Shadow. It is fascinating as a ground as a backgrounder. Law and Order is one of my comfort shows, and I often choose an episode at random to watch if I can't think of anything else to watch. Last night, I chose one at random from season eight, episode five. It was about a discovery of a right-wing militia. It brought the current state of affairs, the topics covered in Long Shadow, such as Waco and my 90s nostalgia, all back together. It also reminded me that while we are in wild times, we definitely had fair warning. Anyway, The episode is called Nullification, Mm. if you're interested in watching it in whatever you get your oldies but goodies. (laughs) Yes, oldies. I was, uh, you know, Dana, I was flipping through channels the other night and Turner Classic Movies was playing Edward Scissorhands. And I was like, excuse me, um, I thought this was for the way we were in Casablanca and shit. Why are we showing Edward Scissorhands on Turner Classic Movies? I know, because we're old. Because we're old. And the young generation thinks that's a classic. It is. I mean, you know, we're we're further away from Edward Scissorhands than Edward Scissorhands was from the way we were. So that is very fun. Very well. <laughs> and we're older than we I know. Were. We're not old. I'm going to get a correction. So <laughs> we're older than some of the people watching Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> it was my favorite movie, by the way, uh, Edward Scissorhands. All right. Next up for Mitch, pronouns he and him. Ladies of the Legumes, been listening since the beginning of the post-kitchen table era. And you've become my primary source for news each morning. Your stories and advocacy have given me courage to start to get involved in local politics. I signed up for the speakers list at our town council meeting this week for the first time ever, encouraging our local officials to remember that civility, cooperation, and conversation are essential to community. I also raised concerns about a particular item on the agenda. When we got to the part of the agenda, that particular part, a female member of the town council raised similar concerns and the mayor instructed her to calm down and relax. Oh, boy. 
Good thing he didn't go for the trifecta and tell her to take a deep breath. Needless to say, I now have a new hobby, and I will be speaking at every town council meeting for the foreseeable future. For pod pet tax, I present Lucy, a lab corgi mix that uh, the internet says we can all call a corgador, and Kevin, the cuddliest pity in the world. Both are rescues through Pet Connect Rescue. That's PetConnectRescue.org. We adopted Lucy and foster failed on Kevin. These two bring so much joy to our lives each day. Look at these guys. Oh, the babies <laughs> in the sunshine. Oh, so, so lovely. Beautiful. All right, AG, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, this next one's from Nikki, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. I want to start off saying that your show is an absolute staple in my daily routine. I know many more listeners have a routine of their own and more of a reason to share this information. My husband received a robocall yesterday from the American Breast Cancer Coalition. At first, it sounded like a great charity, and I was ready to donate, up until the part where the caller said it was for a pack. She went on to say that they are raising money to, quote, support legislators who will fight for fast-track approval of life-saving breast cancer treatment drugs to the FDA. My husband then asked if any of the money was donated to Republican or GOP candidates. There was a moment of silence from the caller. Then she continued with the script, reading, and he asked the same question again. She quickly answered with, I will put you on the DNC do not call list. Have a nice day. Yeah. This blew my mind. Luckily, my husband was already aware of these scam calls because he received a similar call for police reform a week ago. And that was also another pack and ended with the same result. Please let the listeners know so they can be aware because they are targeting Democratic voters appearing to be progressive. Holy shit. We'll include a link in the show notes to the Open Secrets page with more information about that pack, by the way. And that, that it's, a, it's a long hashtag. So, AG, how do you want to do that? Just with the link's going to be in the notes. Yeah, we'll just put the link in the notes. You got it. And by hashtag, I don't mean that. I mean, it's a link. Uh, AG and DG, you are both amazing human beings, and I love all and everything you do for society. I've attached a copy of one of my naked babies, Dale, because he's not camera shy like his brother, Chip. Look at the naked cat. Yeah, naked, (laughs) naked cat. Oh, yeah, just sprawled out. Oh, my goodness. That's a long boy. Amazing. So cute. Thank you for that. Yeah, wow. Um, That has to be fraud. Jesus. You would think so. Yeah, one would think so. All right, next up from Brian, a confession. Hello, Beans Queens, longtime listener, second time submitter. I have something I need to share, which is driving me nuts. Every time I listen to Cleanup and the intro starts with Garland saying the rule of law, all I can think about is that he sounds like the priest in The Princess Bride. (laughs) Marriage! I I don't know what made me think of it, but I can't stop laughing every time it starts. I hope you had a great vacation. Great, Brian. You just made us all. Now we're all going to do that. The rule of is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. Uh, Pod pod Pet Tax is our nutty dog, Tinker. Look at the baby. Oh, the baby. That is a good face. And also Princess Bride is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, it's. It, I would love to hear stories about that, where you say something differently or think something differently because of some pop culture reference. Because, you know, when I, back when I was doing stand-up comedy, Dana, I had a joke about when I was uh, trying out for Jeopardy, and I was losing. I was losing miserably, right? Because you you take the test, and then you take a longer test, and then they do a mock game to make sure that you can, you know, interact with other people, because you know, a lot of smart people like me aren't very good at it. 
and and so they I was good I was going into you know double jeopardy and I was losing so I got to pick first and I was like you know what I'm just gonna fuck with them I'm just gonna be like whatever so I said I'll take presidents for 400 and they are like okay uh, he commanded the first Continental Army and I buzzed in and I said George Washington and the guy of course goes as I expected him to go he said uh, you know you need to put that in the form of a question right so I said. Uh, George Washington, like that. (laughs) (laughs) And so now every time I hear George Washington, and I've gotten emails over the years of people who say every time I hear George Washington, it's always George Washington, like that. And so that's what now we're going to hear Merrick Garland as marriage, and I'm I'm not going to be able to unhear it. So if you have any experiences like that, I would love to hear about it. You can send it into the good news uh, at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here, Dana? I mean, no, other than uh, hug your loved ones. Things are crazy right now and it is good to be home. Mm, I'm so glad you're back. I missed your face and uh, we'll be back in your ears tomorrow. Until then, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. And take everyone with you. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>